Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Hello, everyone, and thanks once again for joining the State of Distress edition of the Fick Focus podcast series where we focus on the happenings in the U.S. distressed and bankruptcy venues. Joining me, as always, uh, BI litigation analyst Nikki Sabluku and distressed credit analyst Phil Brindle. Uh, welcome both. And I am your host, of course, Noel Hebert. And today, November 9th, 2021. So, Phil, as we always do, kind of maybe kicking off with you, uh, it seems like sort of uh, we're just replaying the same old record. Not a lot going on in the land of distress. Uh, from month to month, things are really sort of, you know, pretty staid overall. But November was kind of an interesting uh, period, in, or October was, I should say, where we got a little bit of uh, happiness for both ends of the spectrum in terms of we got a little bit of negative performance in terms of total returns. But at the same time, uh, the the overall ratio of distress still collapsed. So, so what are we looking at? Uh, and then, you know, kind of maybe take us through your, your intermediate term or near term view in terms of what we can expect this winter. Sure. No, thanks a lot, Noel. And as you pointed out, it was October was one of those interesting months where uh, it was actually down one percent. And when I say it's down, I'm referring to the ICE U.S. Distressed Index, which is part of the broader U.S. high yield index. Um, it, the ranks of distress now are 27 billion of the 1.5 trillion dollars of bonds that uh, are in the ICE U.S. High Yield Index, um, and so that was actually the second most reading that we've had of late. Um, you know, and that represent that's just 1.8 percent, uh, an incredibly low distress ratio. Um, and usually, when you see the distress ratio go lower, um, it's usually a good month for the, for the, for the credits that are in the distressed index. Uh, however, that, that wasn't the case and, you know, it can happen because, uh, you, you get, um, the guys who are actually in the, in the components, not necessarily having the, the best performance and whether through bankruptcy or, through rallying out of uh, the distressed index, uh, the levers uh, just aren't delivering the positive momentum that you'd expect. Um, and so, so, you know, when we take a look at the technical picture, which honestly, the this whole uh, the the credit cycle really has been driven by technical momentum. Uh, what you see is sixteen of the past nineteen months have been positive. That. You know, October was one of those just three months. Uh, November, on average, is a push, so I don't expect much to be going on. It is uh, barely negative on average over the 24 years we've been tracking this index. Um, so it's one of, uh, you know, we, we talk about the calendar being split into the December through May as being incredibly positive and June through November as being negative. Uh, so we've gotten through the rough patch of the calendar extremely well. And and so as we look that December to May stretch, it's all of those months have positive returns except for March. Uh, 
and even March's negative return, it's it's not you know insurmountable because the first quarter on average is is also a positive month. So the technical picture is extremely constructive. You've got seasonals working for you, and then you've got the recent trend uh, also advancing. And as we know, credit likes to follow its trend. Um, and I, you know, another thing that we look at in particular is. Uh, previous cycles, you know, how, how do they look? How long do they last? And as when we look at that, um, it looks like this cycle, if it's going to look like the previous four that we've seen uh, since 2000, um, you know, we have about six to 29 months before we actually bottom. <laughs> in, in, Plus, that's a pretty broad range there. So, but I guess, you know, I guess I'd have a few questions on top of that. And, and, and you know, sure. it's, I mean, so when, when the cycles typically bottom, I mean, because to your point, I mean, we're already at really subdued rates in terms of the distress ratio. So when cycles typically bottom, is it, are they bottoming at very low rates of uh, distress ratio and sort of holding and just sort of bouncing along that range for an extended period of time? Or do those sorts of levels like we're seeing now, the 1.8% or whatever it is, uh, the absolute distress ratio sort of mark at least some sort of an inflection I guess that'd be one question. And then I guess another sort of more generalized question is if, you know, well, I guess it's kind of twofold. One is, is, you know, if you're in this space and obviously there's been a lot of capital over the years that got committed and certainly in the wake of uh, last year's pandemic, there was a lot of capital committed. Like, what are these investors doing? Where do you go? I mean, are you just forced to sort of go internationally further afield? Maybe you're dabbling in China these days. I don't know. What do you do in terms of deploying that capital if your mandate is distressed? Sure. So I'll I'll address the first question that you had there, and that was really, you know, what do these bottoms really look like? And you're 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 on point when you ask, you know, does it just kind of get to the low level and then bounce around? That's typically what you see, and then maybe you'll see like, uh, you know, in 2008 we saw that it, or 2007 we saw the extreme bottom where it, it literally went to under one percent. I think it was like a 0.8 percent distress ratio or somewhere thereabouts, and so th- that just got super extreme. And then it, it's almost like you need that super extreme to like make uh, credit investors vulnerable when it starts falling apart, and then you get an unwind. Um, so, so maybe that's one reason why we see these like sharp turns even like that much late that late in a cycle um but generally speaking i'd be satisfied with just a bouncing around there's a lot of you know bad deals that get done at 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 the top of cycles so um you know we're, we're really looking for an extended stay in the trough and um you know just if we're gonna get out of this uh you know credit bubble on the on the sooner side that would be you know maybe we maybe we have another push to the top um for the next six months through the nice seasonal part and then maybe in may or june it starts unwinding we'll see um so so that's kind of how i'm looking at the technical picture and then your second question is what do investors do and you know one of the things that i keep hearing distressed investors saying or you know high yield leverage finance is they keep going further afield from they they get away from the large issuers large issuers you know they're part of they get their bonds become part of these ETFs the 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 CLOs the you know you you get put into the syndicated market and 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 
people aren't necessarily looking at your credit so much as your vintage and you're coming out issuing. Um, and so you have a lot of, uh, uh, oper- uh, a lot of investment funds that are go- looking for that under hundred million dollar, um, the middle market. And, and, and that's where you can find some pretty compelling opportunities, but that also requires a lot more legwork, uh, you know, you're actually, yeah, and then you got extreme liquidity risk if you ever need to, to sort of sell that position. Right. So, that's uh, right. I mean, and I, I mean, I, obviously that's sort of the natural consequence of when cycles get extended, uh, as they are now. I mean, it's, it's interesting to you. I mean, I guess sort of along those lines, not to maybe belabor this part of the conversation, but I mean, one of the things obviously in the last few years that's become increasingly prevalent is, you know, this private debt market space and people doing direct lending. Are you hearing about anybody kind of going in that route saying we've raised this capital, we're going to look for some of these weaker companies and maybe just go direct to them, you know, and do small to intermediate loan sizes, 100, 300, 500 million, or is that uh, not necessarily part of the playbook as yet? No, I, I, I think that's precisely what it is. And then when people find these good opportunities, they they tend to be uh, a bit more hoggish and, you know, not necessarily looking to syndicate it across a whole bunch of other people. Um, you know, a good example of that is Hertz coming out of bankruptcy. I mean, Apollo took down one and a half billion dollars of preferred that just got taken out or is, is planned to be taken out. And uh we just, I, I just looked at a presentation that today that put their IRR at 68% on a one and a half billion that they just deployed in March, in June. So, you know, that not a bad deal. And it's not like they look to syndicate that. Yeah, no, very interesting. So, all right. So, I mean, interesting landscape. I mean, to your point, I mean, seasonal start to turn a little bit more favorable, you know, this time of the year, maybe October is when people start to maybe take exposures off, sort of lock in whatever gains they might have realized. And even in the broader high yield market, I mean, the, the you know, whether I'm talking to investment grade or high yield people, whatever, I mean, the, the story you still hear is, you know, high yield, it's, it's not a lot, but it's one of the places that you still have yield. I mean, obviously that yield is, is both liquidity and risk is sort of what you're really buying there. But if the argument is that the economy remains okay, and maybe in addition to the recently passed infrastructure stuff, assuming that gets pushed through and signed, uh, and any other fiscal stimulus that might come along, then maybe that's uh, an okay risk to take. But I guess, you know, only time will tell. Uh, Moving on, I guess, uh, and and pivoting more to some of the ongoing bankruptcies, I know one of the ones that's, you know, been in the news more recently, and and Nagisa would like to bring you in here is, you know, Johnson & Johnson, uh, you know, all the talcum stuff, I I guess this has been sort of out there for a little while now, but it looks like, you know, back in the news again, maybe some movement here. So what's, what's the latest uh, in that situation? So in October, Johnson & Johnson uh, decided to put, create a new subsidiary, I put it in bankruptcy, and that subsidiary now is ordered to hold uh, all of its talc-related liabilities. And this was done pursuant to what's generally called the Texas Divisional Merger. Uh, there's potentially a lot of issues with this, the main one probably being uh, concern, serious concerns about the bankruptcy as a whole uh, evading fraudulent transfer liability. So looking at the core of what this bankruptcy is, uh, it was the arrangement is done under the Texas Business Reorganization Code. 
which basically maintains that the separation of assets from liabilities does not constitute a transfer. And uh, the idea is because it's not technically a transfer under that um, under the code, uh, the this divisional merger um, there there is no fraud. It does not contain any fraudulent transfer. Now. So taking a subsidiary and selling it with debt, with, with liabilities, uh, it's sort of a classic case of a fraudulent, bringing up fraudulent transfer issues. Um, and that's usually sort of, you can usually do that through a spin-off and we've seen, we've seen spin-offs as, uh, as fraudulent, uses fraudulent transfers quite often. Um, under this Texas law, the merger is defined as including not just two companies merging into one, as we usually think about it, but yeah, it, it's it's actually it also includes the opposite when the company divides its assets from its liabilities, and uh, hence the term divisive uh, or divisional merger. Um, so procedurally, this was a very swift process. It happened within the course of a day to a few days. Um, the, there's three main companies at play here. One is J&J, the parent. There's what uh, they call the old or the formal JJCI, which uh, held, used to hold the majority of all, some JJ would argue, all of the talc-related liabilities. And now we have the new subsidiary that's in bankruptcy, the subsidiary holds all the tax liabilities and the and the new JJCI holds the assets. So again, it was sort of done in the course of the day. Uh, the whole the the new uh, tax subsidiary was incorporated in Texas. Later that day, it switched to a North Carolina company for the purposes of filing for bankruptcy in North Carolina. Why was that? Uh, likely because North Carolina Bankruptcy Court is the only court now, the main court that has dealt with divisional mergers under the Texas Business Reorganization Code. Um, though none of the cases in North Carolina have been finalized and we don't have an answer whether this will be ultimately allowed and will be able to surpass fraudulent transfer issues. But nevertheless, it's obviously beneficial to be in a court where there's at least some experience with this type of with this type of law. Um, how how common is this uh, this strategy? Is this something we we see a lot of, or is this pretty unique? Very uncommon. Very uncommon, and it's the main cases we've seen have been sort of uh, cases that have been filed in North Carolina. Um, there's not. It's not final. They're not final. So it's, I think they've been going on for years at this point. So the question of whether or not uh, they'll be able to overcome the fraudulent transfer issues, those questions haven't been answered. But this case will be fairly, very litigious, procedurally heavy. And uh, there's a lot of sort of steps along the way that even if it doesn't, if you're able to maintain, I guess, the case in court for uh, a long time, you still it could be beneficial on the side of Johnson and Johnson, for example, from a uh, just a negotiation perspective and an ultimate settlement. Uh, 
So we don't, we, there's no precedent yet as to whether or not this can be allowed. I mean, the question will be whether a court will look, um, well, first, the top claimants will have to get standing to challenge it. And then the court will then have to decide whether the transaction is governed by this Texas law as opposed to other fraudulent transfer statutes. And obviously, one way to view it is that to allow it would be put in form of a substance in a way because you're sort of just looking at this um, obscure statute as opposed to general fraudulent transfer law. Uh, so yeah, it's just a very rare. Uh, so so maybe help me understand sort of like from a Jane Jay standpoint. I I think uh, you know there is a funding agreement in place where they they sort of put some money into the the new enterprise, right? What's sort of like the the risk reward here in terms of? I mean, obviously, if it's fraudulent conveyance, I presume that's a much larger liability for them versus uh, you know the dollars that they put in. But what are we looking at there? So there's a few things that J&J uh, is sort of in the midst of right now. Uh, the primary thing is uh, they're trying to take advantage of the bankruptcy code's automatic state protections. Um, a few weeks ago, the court applied the automatic state to the old JJCI, so the company that is the more immediate parent of the current subsidiary, but actually not to Johnson & Johnson. Uh, generally speaking, in bankruptcy, the stay applies to, no, to a non-debtor only when there's an identity of an interest between the debtor and this third party. Um, uh, in this case, the parties argue that claims against the old JJCI could effectively be claims against a bankrupt subsidiary so that took responsibility for all these top claims. And then, uh, but J&J &J, uh, was not, at least uh, two to three weeks ago, was not able to produce clear evidence that uh, in 1979, they passed on all of their top liabilities to all JJCI. So uh, for the past few weeks, J&J &J has been trying to come up with convincing evidence that they actually had no separate and unique talc liabilities. Um, they did ultimately produce some documents just this past weekend, and it's yet to be seen what the court will accept it as, um, as sort of the, that firm agreement, firm 1979 agreement that took away from J&J &J all of its talc liabilities. So that's J&J's sort of first order of business, trying to make sure that um, it will not continue to be a defendant on all the talc uh, losses that are all over the country. And we'll probably know about that soon. And again, this is a very completely separate question from fraudulent transfer issues. And the court is most likely to sort of look at these issues completely separately. And at least in the beginning, assume that there are no fraudulent transfer issues. If this is a proper bankruptcy, there are no good faith, bad faith issues and just sort of decide this issue separately. Um, and then sort of speaking about J&J and what it's, um, what his role in bankruptcy is, this is, I mean, it's, it's trying to sort of soften this complete separation that the Texas law allows by providing for a contribution of uh, $2 billion under a funding agreement, as well as placing uh, shares of a royalty management and finance business. 
present value, I think estimated over 350 million into this new top subsidiary and in, in, in bankruptcy. Um, in their papers, they maintain that this $2 billion is in excess of any liability that the debtor should have and should be sufficient to cover all the talk uh, liabilities that will come up. But uh, I mean, I guess I see this as definitely a point, a key point in negotiation and certainly a number that may go up. Uh, it's certainly their initial offer and not something that was uh, sort of negotiated necessarily among these parties. Um, but something that it's probably quite open to negotiation moving forward. Interesting. And anything else to sort of be, uh, you know, sort of mindful of there in terms of timing and progression? You had mentioned some of these things we we might expect, a, you know, an answer relatively soon in terms of the defendant's status, et cetera. Uh, what's, you know, what is the, I guess, if you're a J&J stockholder on the one hand, right, and you're saying, okay, well, how much exposure do I have uh, of them maybe getting dragged deeper into this and it becoming a real thing, a uh, real liability in excess of, you know, maybe $2 billion or a little bit above there in terms of what they've committed? You know, what are you looking at? Or is this something that's, it sounds like maybe this is going to be going on for a little while. It, it will, if it stays in bankruptcy, if it's not dismissed or, I don't know, you could bring claim of bad faith filing or whatnot. Uh, we can expand on those another day, but I think the most immediate things to look out for is to see whether the court will allow the automatic state to apply to J&J, in which case the top lawsuit would stop against it would be removed as a defendant in those lawsuits. And But the next thing to also look out for is this question of whether the case will stay in North Carolina uh, North Carolina does not have many judges. It's a small court comparatively. Uh, the company filed there, obviously, because it's the only court that is really the primary court that has dealt with some of these issues. And the court, the bankruptcy judge in North Carolina himself sort of questioned the company's choice of filing in the state. And since then, um, top plaintiffs and bankruptcy administrator have uh, sort of have filed motions to take the case out of Carolina. Uh, it could end up in New Jersey. It could, have, it could end up in Delaware. That's yet to be seen. And that could sort of change the landscape and it could present a whole other sets of unknowns given that these other courts have not really dealt with this issue at all. I Interesting. So, and I guess, uh, you know, for, for our listeners here to, uh, we just wanted to bring a little bit of New York city your way. So the horns uh, that you hear in the background, that's live New York. And so if you're located somewhere else, uh, you're welcome. Um, maybe uh, changing gears a little bit and, and moving to another situation that we've got going on GTT communications. And Phil, let's bring you back here. I know you're, sort of on top of this. What's what's our latest uh, with our friends at GTT? Well, distress was so scarce that we actually had to find companies that had not yet filed for bankruptcy and just like talk about their plans of reorganization. Um, now, in all seriousness, GTT Communications uh, solicited uh, prior to filing um, a, a full uh, prepackaged plan of reorganization and, uh, you know, with the disclosure statement so, and they had their first uh, first day early in November, uh, they filed the prepack on October 31st, which was the deadline that they uh, was in the solicitation documents. 
And I, I just figured I, I'll go over some of the broad strokes here. There was uh, $1.44 billion of first lien secured debt, um, $575 million of unsecured notes. Uh, the company itself, I'm sorry, I should start there, uh, is a telecom telecom provider, um, and they had undersea fiber um, uh, crossing the uh, Atlantic. And um, and the, the business, basically, they would typically lease fiber, uh, Usually in the U.S., but also in Europe, and then and then they would uh, sell it to corporations and uh, you know links to corporations. And um, what they started doing was actually buying hard assets as opposed to just leasing. And the maintenance of that, and the, the they ran into liquidity issues. They ran into accounting issues. Um, it started with the accounting issues, uh, creating a technical default on their bonds. They got forbearances, but then it, they ran into a liquidity issue. And, and essentially for the last year and a half, um, they, they, they actually sold, um, uh, their hard assets for about $1.7 billion of net proceeds. And that went to pay down that secured debt. So that 1.44 that they actually filed with, that was actually closer to three billion, um, you know, when prior. So now I'll get back to the plan. They, um, they could have just been mining Bitcoin. <laughs> that's what we all should be doing. Um, but uh, so, so the plan is that they're going to take that two billion dollars roughly of debt, and they're going to exit with only 854 million dollars of debt. Um, they had a. Uh, they started with the restructuring support agreement, with eighty-five percent of the secured debt on board and seventy-six percent of the unsecured notes on board in in early September. Um, and then the, what the the plan is, and it's already been voted, and and uh, the disclosure statement and confirmation joint hearing will be on December fifteenth. Um, what the secured lenders are going to get here is the $854 million term loan that we just talked about. That's the exit debt um, with very nice terms. That's not going to get cashed out necessarily because uh, I think those lenders probably like those terms. And then they're also going to get 88% of the new equity. Um, and so, and then they're also going to get excess cash and some deferred cash from the assets sale that we mentioned before. Um, net, net, the, but, but the post reorganization is back to just sort of this leasing entity. Is that where we're? That's right. In terms of, that's yeah. right. They they lost the hard assets. Go back to our you know the the knitting we know and uh, mm -hmm. and and that's that's the company. Um, the so so the the ex estimated recovery for the secured lenders is about is right a little under par. So they voted for the plan. Um, and about 68 cents of the 99 cents is is going to be cash or debt. So you're getting mostly, um, you know, denominated recovery. Uh, there is some equity there. The equity valuation that we think the plan used is about 1.4 billion on the enterprise. Um, that puts the uh, that puts the value of the equity between like 550 and 600. Um, the unsecured notes, well, I told you 88% of the equity went to the secured, so 12% went to the unsecured notes. They also get uh, warrants for 30% of the company, and the strike on that is actually pretty close to the money because uh, 
it's 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 going to be set officially on the effective date and it's it's going to be set such that um the secured lenders get a a, a full recovery so um there's some math that i'm sure the investment bankers will have fun with but that's the we we've assumed that that to be about uh one point a little over 1.4 billion um but 30 percent is a, that's a big warrant package um they the, the company estimated that's worth about 17 and a half cents uh the bonds are actually trading about 12 cents so there's a, a disconnect there um you know, I, I always kind of look to the towards the market to find real enterprise value as opposed to uh, necessarily what investment bankers come up with for the valuation <laughs> analysis. Yeah, what are you saying? What are you saying? You don't, you don't trust the bankers? Come on, man. Yeah, they they, they operate within a range, um, and they, they usually provide ranges. Interestingly, they 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 didn't bother that. They didn't bother providing a valuation range um, uh, for this. Uh, at least not. I mean, in the I guess it'll be. Stocks. I mean, it'll be interesting, right? So, I mean, if you're a Warren holder on a post reorg basis, you got a business that you know. I guess you maybe know sort of within a range of predictability what your steady state cash flow is going to be, and who knows what that is relative to servicing the debt and that sort of stuff. But I mean, it doesn't strike me as necessarily a, a material growth business. So I don't know. I'm. I guess I'm trying to think about. What's your play post-emergence? Are you kind of, I mean, you've already been down the path of trying to bring in assets and grow your business by kind of controlling more of the vertical or something like that. Is it, uh, do you just end up sort of looking for a suitor and seeing, you know, will somebody pay us a premium to, to sort of build this into their their infrastructure or, you know, or how do you think about sort of business planning and strategic relevance post-emergence? Right. They. I mean, they've effectively been a, a you know, uh, a broker uh, of of fiber and you know communication services here. So uh, it, it's interesting. I, I I don't have a good sense for uh, necessarily. That I know that their cash flow projections were uh, fairly optimistic. A lot of cash flow generation. Um, you know, the big thing here is that I it, it's really a bet that there's excess capacity out there that you know, people will want to lease at a discount and, uh, it's, it's a tricky business and, you know, it's, it's hard to see that it, you know, necessarily is a a long-term business. Um, but, uh, just think communications on whole, whether you're talking cable or telco or whatever else, at least in the U S I mean, valuation wise, you know, it's not been, despite the market kind of pressing the new highs and new highs and new highs, it's kind of, you know, it, it's sort of moving sideways to lower for a lot of, you know, the bigger established names in the space. So I guess, I guess it's just, it's interesting timing. And, and I guess, you know, trying to think about, I mean, it'll take warrants, obviously, right? The lottery tickets, a lottery ticket. So. Right. And being, and the, the important thing is uh, like being cash flow positive, uh, that, that at least gives you sustainability to the point where maybe you can, you, you trade the assets. Um, I'll just summarize the, the equity actually got warrants here, even though they were deemed to reject the plan. Um, they got warrants for 4.9% of the company at, uh, about 2.8 billion. So that's twice what we think the company's using as sort of their enterprise value. And then general unsecured claims, which is your trade. Um, you always like to hear trade gets treated whole, um, as, as opposed to settling for the 
seventeen and a half cents that the unsecured notes get. So um, anyway, that they they filed October thirty first, December fifteenth. I assume the, the confirmation. Uh, you know, I didn't see any. I, it doesn't seem like there's much strong opposition. And then, you know, they you have get the they, holidays right around the corner. They're going to want to push that one through. Well, I don't. well and, and they get and they get through. They have to go pursue, uh, you know, um, some of these uh, public utility uh, committees uh, to get approvals. Um, and so that's that's going to take some time. I think they were planning on exiting bankruptcies uh, March or April. Interesting. So still, I guess, a little ways to go there in terms of getting out, but uh, interesting goings on, uh, to be sure. So I guess, uh, you know, I mean, that kind of takes us through sort of the active, semi-active space. And I know there's a couple of names sort of on the cusp. Maybe we save those for another time. Uh, But any sort of last thoughts, last words here? I mean, I guess we got one more of these before the end of the year. Uh, So in advance of that, for those who celebrate Thanksgiving uh, in the U.S., Happy Thanksgiving to you, I guess, early uh, but any last thoughts from you, Phil Nagisa, in terms of what you're thinking of, what you're looking for, uh, or what uh, what our clients should expect? Yeah, no, I I think I just I tend to think we're going to continue to see a very subdued distress space. Uh, that the seasonality that seems to have dominated in technicals, uh, a lot of excess cash on the sidelines, just seems to be keeping you know debt prices extremely yeah. high. Yeah, and a fifteen billion dollar taper, while ultimately may lead to something. Right now, it's just uh, too modest to, I guess, maybe move at the margins, not least given the amount of liquidity in the space. Nagisa, any last uh, thoughts in terms of where you're at and what you're thinking? I think the progression of the J and J case will be interesting. It's definitely new. Um, the rest of the cases we've been covering sort of have been postponed, and but hopefully we'll see some progress by the end of the year for the. Latin American, Latin American Airlines and Intel South, for example. Right. All right. Well, as always, appreciate your time. And, and as always, appreciate our listeners for for dialing in. Uh, wishing you all a happy and healthy. And uh, we'll, we'll catch you in December. Cheers. Cheers.